Welcome to Rich Pickings, a series that explores the investment beliefs and philosophies of prominent professional investors to enable you to decide whether you agree or disagree and to help you better articulate your own investment philosophy. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Harry Bell Krishna, Portfolio Manager at T. Rowe Price in London. Founded in 1937, T. Rowe Price has more than US $1.6 trillion in assets under management and has operations in 16 countries around the world. Harry's the Portfolio Manager for the firm's Global Impact Equity Strategy. Harry, let's start at the beginning. I don't imagine that funds management was in the back of your mind when you first started your studies and probably not even in your first career iterations or thinking. Can you give me just a quick run through of how you got into funds management? So Graham, I've got a, a really global background. So if I sort of go right right at the beginning, you know, I was born and raised in India, um, you know, grew up there till I was a teenager, spent some time in Latin America. So spent uh, time living in Sao Paulo, Brazil as well as I was growing up. Um, and, and actually went to university in uh, Sydney, Australia, uh, University of New South Wales. And I did a commerce degree. I specialized in finance and accounting there from, from an academic perspective. Um, and I was always intrigued by the game theory of markets, always in, intrigued by the fact that, you know, with markets, you know, you, you can sort of see where you stand. Um, there is sort of distinct accountability for results. Um, and so I was always very keen, you know, at, at, at an early stage to, to sort of get into markets or economic markets more generally um, and financial markets more specifically. Uh, but through my university days, I was really influenced by reading uh, The Intelligent Investor, which I think a lot, a lot, lot of people who start off in, in finance start off with and, you know, get sort of uh, inspired by, you know, the Ben Graham and the Warren Buffett School of Investing um, and, and sort of really fancy themselves as investors, right? And so right out of the gate, I wanted to become an investor. But, um, you know, the strong advice at the time from a lot of my mentors was, you need a bit more of a training ground in financial modeling and valuation skills and corporate finance before you sort of make that step. Um, so I spent, um, coming out of university, I spent a few years um, in Goldman Sachs investment banking, um, which uh, was really instrumental in developing a lot of the financial toolkit that I, that I still use when I, when I analyze companies, when I value companies, um, and, and also give me a lot of information around capital allocation and so when companies are engaged in mergers and acquisitions, how I think about, you know, their targets and their capital allocation philosophies. Um, but I was very keen to sort of, you know, leave investment banking and get into professional funds management. And so I spent a couple of years in business school uh, in the U.S. Uh, and sort of coming out of that uh, is kind of how I got into professional funds management and joined T. Rowe Price uh, as a summer MBA um, in 2009 and sort of joined them full-time in 2010. So I've been with Tiro for the better part of 12 years. Um, you know, lots of different cycles, lots of lessons. Uh, the market's very good at, you know, humbling everyone every every so often. And so you, see, you always learn something new. Uh, and that's that's what I love about it, right? I mean, this is one of those jobs where you never get bored. There's never a dull, dull moment. I wake up every morning, there's something new you can look forward to learning about. And that's just something that is really exciting. And, and even today, 12 years in, uh, I, I, I love it. Um, the other thing I just say about funds management is from a social perspective, and, and it, it actually kind of informs where I am today as well as, as, as an investor and a fund manager, I've always felt the role that fund management, funds management plays in channeling, um, you know, basically enabling people to enjoy their retirement better or sort of achieve their retirement goals better um, is something that I was very much drawn to from a social perspective in terms of the function we uh, satisfy as a society. Increasingly, I think funds management plays a very important role in channeling capital 
towards the right actors, towards driving positive environmental and social outcomes. And so that was another reason as well that, you know, I was very keen to break into professional funds management. Um, and, and again, very glad to be doing that. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm part of a firm that has a very, very strong, uh, you know, retail uh, and retirement business. Um, and so, you know, day in, day out, you're going to work knowing that, you know, in your own little way, you're making a difference in people's lives. So you've spent time living, as I can see, in India, in Brazil, in Australia. What on earth influenced these changes? Was it just wanderlust? Well, you know, unfortunately, it's one of those things when you're that age, you know, there's, there's little beyond your control. So it's, it was really my, my family, you know, moving around. So, so you kind of had to follow my family, right? <laughs> when, you, when you're sort of under 18. So, so there wasn't much uh, choice in the matter. But, but what it did give me is a, a, a sort of intellectual thirst for an intellectual, um, you know, kind of, you know, draw, pull towards travel, learning about different cultures, learning about different countries, uh, I still, you know, use all that travel experience in my in my day to day job as a global fund manager. Um, obviously, the pandemic has sort of changed things, uh, you know, from a travel perspective. But but it, what it hasn't changed is, you know, um, the the sort of excitement or the the thirst to invest in, you know, finding the best stocks and the best companies in different countries around the world, and and sort of not being beholden to a home bias and just sort of looking at com- you know companies that you're sort of comfortable with. Um, and so, from a cultural standpoint, I think it it, it sort of also teaches you adaptability. I think adaptability is a skill that's really important when you invest because, like I said earlier, you know, you're always going to get something. And, and that's the beauty of markets, right? The game theory of markets is there's always a buyer and a seller for a stock, right? Or, or a bond or, or whatever the instrument is. And so for every bull case, there's a bear case, right? And someone's got a view. And, and, and on any particular day in the market, either the bull case is playing out or the bear case is playing out. And so having that adaptability and that sort of thick skin to be able to you know, stick to your philosophy, stick to your guns, uh, and and sort of hold investments for the long run. Uh, I do think you know was was also sort of um, informed by a lot of my travel experience and the fact that I had to go to different cultures and different schools and universities and adapt to different um, you know uh, facets of life. When you were considering what was ultimately an offer for you to join T. Rowe Price, Harry, how much due diligence did you do into the firm? Was that a long and thoughtful process for you or given your relatively young age at the time, and of course still, did you accept that straight away? So it definitely was a very long uh, process uh, on both sides, actually, not just from, from myself, also from Tiro. So, um, you know, just, just to point out, you know, when Tiro hires people uh, in, into the investment fraternity, there is a very, very long uh, due diligence process, you know, from an interview standpoint, you know, I, I did the better part of something like 35 or 40 interviews, um, you know, before I before I got the role. And even then, it was a summer internship. So I actually spent three and a half months in T-Row, um, effectively being an investor and making calls on a subsector. At, at the time, it was uh, infrastructure and Australian banks um, and, and coming up with sort of, you know, potential buy recommendations in that area. Uh, and so that was a big part of my due diligence, actually living and breathing the job at Tiro to see what it was like, um, spending time with a lot of investors uh, across the globe, um, and doing a lot of external due diligence as well, like you know talking to people on the sell side, talking to people I respect, uh, investors I respect, um, people in other industries I respect as well, um, and doing a fair bit of uh, work on that. And what really came through uh, from a lot of that due diligence was, you know, Tiro, and, and I, I still truly believe that, which is why I'm still here. Um, Tiro is a place that really allows investors to be themselves, build their own investment style, stick with that investment style, and you don't have the sort of you know centralized CIO office telling you sort of 
you know, tomorrow we, we you know we're going to have to buy U.S. stocks, or tomorrow we've got to buy Chinese stocks. There's there is a flexibility to allow you to be patient, have a long-term horizon, and build your own investment style uh, over time. And that still very much is the case uh, 12 years in. And um, I think that's a really key and important facet if you want to build your skills and be successful as an investor over a long period of time. Independent thinking. Thank you, Harry. Now, let's turn to the central question of uh, this conversation. What's the core principle that underpins what you believe and which really drives the way you think about investing? So, Graham, for me, you know, one principle, if I were to, if I were to really distill it to one principle in terms of what drives my day-to-day investing belief, it is that the market over time underpays for the durability and persistence of earnings, cash flow, and returns. You know, what, what do I mean by that? There's a lot of really special companies, by the way, you know, if you look at the, you know, statistically, less than 5% of the S&P 500 can actually consistently outgrow the S&P 500 from an earnings perspective beyond a sort of five to 10 year time horizon, right? So it, it really is about finding companies that can beat the fade. Um, and that's something that's really underpinned my, my views and beliefs. And, and sort of when I think about what that translates to the kind of stocks I look for, um, you know, these are typically companies that operate in fertile industries because the industry structure allows for them to preserve pricing power, expand returns. It allows those companies to also think about effectively preserving their business mode. And typically are companies led by good management teams that allocate capital well. So I think capital allocation is a really, really important, um, you know, tenant that I focus on when I look at companies. And, you know, when I look back on my experiences, you know, and again, mistakes I've made in the past have included, you know, going down the quality curve, right? In you know, engaging in industries where the industry structure, um, you know, got killed by competition, or uh, industries where management teams won't allocate capital, you know, won't allocating capital well. Uh, whereas when I actually put all those beliefs together, and this is you know years of doing this, and you know learning from uh, investing, making mistakes, getting humbled, uh, and and sort of looking ahead, it really is that if I can find those companies that can beat the fade the consensus fade from a durability and persistence perspective, and you put all the other aspects together around industry structure, capital allocation, uh, and pricing power, I think ultimately you can find a lot of stocks that, you know, consensus is typically looking out maybe a year, maybe maybe even two years, right? But if, if, if you've got a long-term patient horizon, able to look out sort of five to 10 years um, and can really find those companies that can actually outgrow the index for a long, long period of time, uh, I think there's a lot of alpha to be made uh, in in those stocks. Now that that brings me to the point about valuation too. I think ultimately uh, you can't get carried away, uh, you know, with exciting stocks that necessarily beat the fade if you're overpaying for them. Because you know if the market's pricing in a lot of that benefit, you know, right at the right at the get go, um, the risk is you sort of don't you know benefit in the in the alpha opportunity down the track. And so I keep a pretty close eye on valuation. Uh, I focus on price to free cash flow multiples uh, as much as I can. Sense check my valuations with DCFs, not as a not as a primary anchor, but as but as a sense check, um, you know, cross check with multiples, but primarily sort of running with that price to free cash flow uh, perspective on our value companies when all the other sort of you know beliefs and principles are sort of met. Um, you know, and again, when I look at you know some of the some of the best names that you know in my, in my investment career, you know, names I've liked, names I made money in, you know, a, a stock like Danaher, right? So Danaher in the US that you know is a life science tools company. You know, even sort of five, six years ago, this was a two to three percent organic growth business. Uh, but through very efficient capital allocation, 
that two to three percent organic growth business is now more like a six to seven percent organic growth business by buying the right kind of assets and bioprocess or biopharma, um, and and sort of you know playing a very key role in even the COVID pandemic response right now. Uh, and those are the kind of businesses where you know five years ago no one was modeling data how it was going to grow six or seven percent five years out, and the multiple certainly wasn't egregious. And so you can make a lot of money in stocks like that, in my view, over time. And so when I look at the portfolio managed today. And again, I, I brought up sort of, um, you know, the appreciation of different social constructs, living and working in so many different countries. Uh, but I, I, I really do believe, and, and you know, at a personal level, uh, you know, funds management and finance can also, this is by the way, another core belief, can play a very key role in allocating capital to the right actors from an environmental and social um, standpoint. And, and that's kind of my bread and butter of what I do today, which is uh, running an impact fund, uh, really focusing on companies that deliver positive environmental and social impact together with uh, positive financial performance. Um, and what I talked to you about, the durability and persistence really applies to the financial performance bit. Uh, but, but I'm obviously screening the market for positive environmental and social actors as well. So just take a moment with me here, Harry, and give me a little bit of background on the evolution of your core philosophy. How has that changed over time? What are the influences or influencers, I guess, that have molded your thinking into what it is now? Yeah, look, it's definitely evolved, Graham. I mean, there's been a lot that's happened in markets. And I, I think, you know, you know, I'd be lying if I said, you know, you start on day one, you've got a philosophy and you stick to it. I think, you know, investing is definitely uh, an industry where, like I said, you know, you learn something new every day. And I think it's really important to reflect those learnings um, into your investment philosophy and your, and your core beliefs and principles. Um, and so I guess the way it's evolved for me, I think starting off uh, in investing, um, maybe I, I sort of took the Ben Graham, Warren Buffett, you know, adage a little too literally. Um, so I, I used to sort of over-index to, you know, just looking for cheap stuff, right? And, and you know, over time, I learned that, you know, sometimes, you know, the market's actually more right than wrong. And so, you know, if stuff is cheap, it's probably cheap for a reason, right? I mean, there's either issues around business quality, there's issues around maybe earnings estimates are too high, or industry structure is, you know, not ripe for you know preserving you know business or or economic modes and so those were some hard lessons I learned early in my career in terms of um, a lot of the tenets I talked to you about those are really important to me because they actually allow for the preservation of economic rents and investing. What I'd also say is as time's gone on, I've just developed a much greater and greater appreciation for quality. Um, you know, ultimately. You know, when, when I look at stocks, you know, sometimes, you know, in, in any industry, you'll find, you know, you'll still find a pretty good industry structure. You'll find a good bunch of stocks in that industry, uh, but you might find a B plus management team, or you might find a company that is an A plus from a market share gaining standpoint. And, and over time, I've just kind of come to appreciate if, if I can buy an A plus asset at a, at a reasonable price, nine times out of 10, I'm doing better with that strategy than buying a B minus asset that's sort of slightly cheaper than the A plus asset over time, because ultimately the A plus asset you know, takes share, uh, more people want to work for that company, so they attract better talent, typically have management that allocate capital better, um, communicate with the market better, and those are companies that have done better over time. What has meaningfully evolved for me, Graham, as well over time is, you know, about six or seven years ago, and like I said, you know, as a person, you know, I've always had that appreciation of different social constructs, lived and worked in so many different, um, you know, countries and economic systems, um, and at a personal level, I've always been very passionate about climate change and, and you know, solving for climate change. But about six or seven years ago, as sort of ESG really came to the forefront, 
Um, you know, I really felt like as a finance industry, you know, we have a role to play here in terms of allocating capital towards the right ESG actors. Um, and I guess I spent the better part of six, six or seven years also evolving my ESG and impact journey. Um, and, and, and I guess where it's evolved to now is I've, I've really come to the view that if we can find positive environmental and social impact actors, those are companies that consumers want their products more of. Those are you know, companies that other industrials want their decarbonization solutions more, more of. These are industries that regulators are going to incentivize most to think, you know, renewable energy or industrial gases that enable, you know, decarbonization or, you know, carbon capture and storage or on the social equity side, you know, financial inclusion or healthcare. I think these are companies that are just going to have better top line and bottom line growth prospects than the index over time, uh, which is why I firmly believe that impact investing and financial investing go hand in hand. I don't necessarily think there's any compromise to be had there because if we can identify those impact stocks properly, I stick to those core beliefs and tenets I talked to you about earlier. I think ultimately we can find a collection of stocks that do better than the index. Uh, and if it's at a reasonable price, I think you know we can, we can also outperform the index over time. Is there any one individual you'd say has had a significant influence on your investment philosophy? Or is it more a tapestry of inputs? So I think from an external perspective, Graham, definitely a tapestry of inputs. So, you know, when I think about all the investors I respect and I've, I've read their books and their, their teachings, like, you know, the Howard Marxes or the Ray Dalios and, and obviously Buffett and Graham, you know, in, in, the, in these sort of early days, um, you know, huge amount of respect, you know, for all those investors. And they've all sort of informed my views around how I think about intrinsic value, about quality, about management teams. But uh, from an internal perspective, you know, I do have to call out Scott Berg uh, at T. Rowe Price. You know, I, I think having worked closely with him, you know, for the better part of six years, still working very closely with him. I think he's definitely had an indelible impression on sort of how I think about, you know, companies, stocks, industries, um, you know, sort of, you know, allowed me to sort of expand my horizons um, and, and think about investing, you know, very creatively. Um, so I definitely call him out if, if I were to name one person uh, at T-Row Price. And how do you make sure you're absolutely focused on your philosophy? But at the same time, you remain open to contestable and challenging ideas. It's, it's a great question, Graham. And so I, I, I call out, you know, I, I actually put this down literally on paper, you know, three, three things I do to, to make sure I do that. Because one of the biggest risks, as you say, is if you get a collection of like-minded investors thinking the same way, uh, there's a huge risk of groupthink, right, particularly in firms uh, where everyone sort of thinks the same way, you get drawn to the same stuff. And then, and then at some point, there's a day of reckoning and it doesn't work, right? And so whether that was the, the tech bubble of, you know, uh, the, the late 90s or whether that was, you know, pre, pre you know, GFC where, you know, financials were, were sort of in that bucket. So I think it's really important to sort of sanity check and, and sort of push oneself all the time. So, so I, I do three things, really. So one is what I call the fresh sheet of paper uh, framework. So every six months, um, I literally look at my portfolio and say, if I was, you know, if, if, if I was starting this portfolio today, right, so like, forget all the history, forget, you know, what I've done, done so far. If I was starting this portfolio today, what would it look like, right? And so I literally, literally write down, um, you know, some names or ideas that I've always wanted to own that I, you know, you know, maybe haven't owned for whatever reason. And that influences me to sort of reconsider some of those new ideas and keep the portfolio fresh. So that's sort of one thing I do. The, the second thing is I try and actively seek out investors who think differently from me, right? So, you know, we're blessed at T-Row to have uh, a very strong, you know, deep value franchise as well. So, you know, while, you know, my investment style with impact investing is more naturally drawn towards durable quality growth investing, 
you know, I constantly want a viewpoint from a, say, a deep value investor is much more focused on mean reversion or intrinsic value to sort of question some of the some of the names I hold or the stocks I hold. And so I have a lot of those kind of conversations uh, with a lot of folks at Tiro. And I think that really helps me, you know, in, in, in many cases, I'm not changing what I do, but it at least allows me to invest in those stocks with my eyes wide open. Uh, you know, l- let's say I own a Shopify, uh, you know, Canadian-based uh, um tech company that, that trades on a pretty expensive valuation, like an intrinsic value mean reversion investor is probably going to scoff at that. But I wanted to understand their point of view because my point of view on Shopify is it's a hugely under-monetized asset and there's huge earnings upside to the five to 10 years out. And so the near-term multiple does not give the company credit for what that upside is actually going to be. Um, and so again, having that conversation with the value investor allows me to explore some of those issues and, and debate those issues. The third thing I do is you know, try as much as I can to read, um, you know, re- read uh, sort of information and knowledge outside of just the investment industry, right? So sometimes it's very easy to be, you know, eff- effectively like, you know, like a horse in a straight line. Um, you know, you're, you're looking at, um, you know, similar things. You're, you're talking to the sell side, you're looking at sort of, you know, financial reports. And so what I try as much as I can is educate myself in areas completely outside of investments, but that has huge impact to the way I think about investing, right? So whether that's behavioral finance, whether that's uh, just, you know, geopolitical history. So, you know, when you're investing in China, for example, and you're thinking about, you know, some of the, some of the geopolitical issues around the world, it's, it's very helpful to understand the history, uh, you know, surrounding a lot of these countries and, the, and, and things like that. So uh, I, I read a lot of books on geography and geopolitics and uh, history as well to sort of inform my opinions there. Uh, and I think that's really important to sort of expand your horizons and think beyond sort of uh, you know, just a DCF for a PE multiple. Harry, what's the most prominent challenge to your thinking at the moment? Is there any particular trend or occurrence which is concerning you or is maybe even reinforcing the perspective that you bring? From an investing standpoint, I'd say one of the trends that, you know, really does, which I'm living through right now, right, is, is you know, rising oil prices, rising inflation, um, rising yields, um, you know, typically results in segments of the market like oil and gas, metals and mining, um, you know, sort of traditional banks doing really well at the expense of, you know, say, renewable energy or the, at the expense of healthcare and some of the more traditional kind of names we don't want an impact, impact fund. Um, and so that's definitely, you know, um, questioning, right? I mean, like in the, in the sense of, the market's bidding up the, the values of those assets, but it's not in any way questioning my long-term belief in impact investing because ultimately I think, you know, whatever's happening now is is transitory, is temporary. Um, you know, I, I do think there'll be supply responses on, on a lot of commodities. And, and, and I think ultimately the trains left the station. I think people people don't want their economies powered by oil and gas down the tracks. So and at some point, I think there'll be a demand uh, day of reckoning. Um, and so that's one that, you know, it's a trend I'm living through right now. It definitely calls into question stuff, but... It isn't sort of shaking my long-term belief uh, in impact investing. Thank you, Harry. So to wrap up, when you come to the end of your career, what's the one stake you'd like to have left in the ground that's made a real difference? It's a great question, Graham. And, and you know, one that I, I sort of want, and actually this is a thing that sort of keeps me going every day, right, is, is, is exactly that, is, what, is what, what legacy do I want to leave? And the way I think about it is 20 years from now, if the whole world or the whole financial world thought about impact investing differently in the sense of everyone thought about the impact of their investments rather than just making money. Um, I, you know, by the way, I think you can do both. 
um, I think that would be success for me. And because I think, you know, doing what I'm doing, uh, I'm really leaving a stake in the ground in terms of socializing publicly the value of impact investing, educating uh, clients on, you know, the, the sort of financial benefits and, and also the the ethical benefits of uh, impact investing. I think if more and more people were in the financial community, this became more kind of mainstream. Um, that would be definitely something I'd look back on and say that was, if I, if I, and I played a part in that, that would be something that I'd be very proud of as a legacy. Harry Krishna, Portfolio Manager for the Global Impact Equity Strategy at T. Rowe Price. Thanks for sharing some of the beliefs that shape your investment philosophy.